Coming to a trench near you, Naked Archaeology. Hello and welcome to Naked Archaeology with me, Diana O'Carroll. And me, Tom Burke. We're back from our holidays and we've got our hot lineup of archaeology for you. This month, how do archaeologists study the remains of things that are liable to rot? We were excavating very large farmhouses. We were very lucky because the storage area was burned down. So in the storage vessels, we have found accumulation of hundreds of grape pips. And immediately you can imagine hectares of vines okay, surrounding the estate in order to produce the wine. So with the plant remains, we could visualize the human landscape of the 3rd century BC in Macedonia. So that's quite amazing, I think. Evie Margaritas, and she'll be speaking to Duncan Howitt Marshall about that very shortly. Also this month, I'll take a tour of the local East Anglian Fenlands. Thus, we'll look at Roman gladiatorial schools, hidden roads, and Australopithecus sediba. And in Backyard Archaeology this month, I'll be exploring the ruins of the Alhambra in Andalusia, a giant red complex of palaces. Naked Archaeology. Exposing the finds. First up this month, the Fenlands of East Anglia. It's best known for being incredibly flat, which is great for cyclists and farmers, and it's home to our local city of Cambridge. But was it always like this? This month I've come to the broad, stark, epic and rich flatlands of East Anglia. The Fens are Britain's most low-lying pieces of land, with sparse trees and fewer hills, where several of its roads are at an altitude that's below sea level. In summer, it's one of the UK's hottest and driest areas, and in winter, the harsh winds from Siberia blow across it unhindered. And historically, it was known as an empty region, thinly populated by either rebellious tribes, invading Angles from Germany, religious hermits and scavengers dosed up on opium. But the entire landscape has changed enormously over the last few thousand years, and this change owes a great deal to human action. So I've come to a drained bit of sedge fen in Suffolk, and a big ditch known as Twelve Foot Drain. A large amount of East Anglia is crisscrossed with these drainage ditches. They're basically V-shaped channels that run down the sides of roads and fields. And yes, it's pretty much what you'd expect from a drainage ditch. It's full of slow-moving, slightly smelly water and pond life. But either side is the rich farmland soil, which is the prize for all the digging. Now, this particular ditch has been here since the early 1700s, and it's these ditches which have so dramatically changed the landscape of eastern England. In the Bronze Age, much of the marshes, meres and fens were difficult to cross or even live in, with some areas waterlogged and densely wooded. Only small islands of land were inhabitable, the rest being an impenetrable mess of soggy trees. So to cross them 4,000 years ago, people built raised causeways. And when the Romans arrived, they built their own raised fen causeway on top of layers of gravel and stone raft. And they started digging around to do a bit of drainage too. So the Romans constructed Car Dyke, which is an 85 mile long waterway, of which parts seem to be solely for the purposes of catching water. Although the remains of coal and cargo indicate that it was used to transport goods too. 
but it was in the 1600s that huge areas of the fens were drained using techniques borrowed from the Netherlands. Now, the fourth Earl of Bedford, along with a group known as the Adventurers, funded the construction of these drains and were rewarded with large grants of the resulting farmland. But even after this initial drainage, the fens were still susceptible to flooding, so wind pumps were used to pump water away from the affected areas. But all this engineering didn't produce a perfect field. Once drained of water, the peat shrank and the fields lowered further. The more effectively they were drained, the worse the problem became, and soon the fields were lower than the surrounding rivers. By the end of the 17th century, the land was underwater again. But before all this happened, what was happening to the soil was that the dead vegetation of the peat hadn't decayed because it was sealed by the water above. And when the peat oxidises, it dries out and it shrinks, those unhindered winds can simply blow all the soil away. So much of the fens are now below high tide level. Only big embankments of the river and the more recent flood defences stop the land from being inundated. A particularly good example of this is the cast iron pole which stands outside the village of Holm near Peterborough and it was left over from the palace built to house the Great Exhibition of 1851 and before draining Whittlesea Mere it was hammered into the ground so that its top was level with the soil. So that was in 1851 but now it stands at 12 foot tall and the land around it has fallen away to a little below sea level. And on the Black Fen nearby, house foundations have become exposed and this causes the buildings they support to lean at odd angles. And it means that original doorways are now several feet above the ground. But uh, who knows, maybe with climate change it will be submerged again. So the East Anglian land is now fairly treeless, dry and flat. But its peculiar history has attracted some peculiar people too. In the Bronze Age, Flagfen was home to a ritual site where people cast broken daggers, jewellery, beach pebbles and animal bones into the boggy waters. And much later on, in 520 AD, tribes of Britons were displaced by the Angles and the population of the area dropped. And it then became a haven to early Christians who sought isolation. So these hermitages were established on these islands of the Fens, which then became monasteries with these huge estates. And then to add to the mystery of the people of this area. Once uh, the drainage had occurred and agriculture had grown, the lands became home to farming communities. But in the middle of the 19th century, they were singled out for having unusually high levels of opium consumption. But there we are. This flat land has also attracted the attention of the flat earthers. Now, these are people convinced that the earth was, well, flat. And one of these drainage canals is the Old Bedford River, which runs straight and uninterrupted for six miles. And it was the subject of the Bedford Level experiment, where observations were taken by two men who wanted to settle a bet on whether the Earth was round. And believe it or not, that happened as late as the 19th century. The uh, flat Earth is lost, by the way. And that was the Fen Landscape. My thanks go to Dr Charlie French of Cambridge University for his input on that. But now it's time for some news. Tom, I gather you wish to educate us a bit about your barbarian ancestors. Tell us the news. Yes, Diana, a little bit about Romano-British Silchester and also a fascinating new discovery in Austria. What's that? Well, we're going a bit Roman on this news feed, so I'll start with Austria. 
just east of Vienna, they found what they believe to be a Roman gladiator school. Not any old school, but one that rivals the infamous Ludus Magnus Gladiatorial School in Rome. Really, what did they find? Well, that's the interesting question, Diana, because they didn't actually find anything. Okay, what do you mean? Well, instead of the traditional process, archaeology of digging and recording, which is generally regarded as destructive, the site was discovered and intensively studied using radar imagery. So they found up to 40 small cells, presumably for fighters, surrounded by thick walls. They've also found what they think is the cemetery for those fighters that didn't survive training. No digging. Boo. Is that all they found? No, no, no. The Romish Germanish uh, Central Museum have said that the three-dimensional images also represent a complex thought to involve a mixture of a barracks, military barracks, and a prison, uh, lending weight to the interpretation that this is a gladiatorial school. But the simplest and probably the most fascinating discovery, I think, is a thick wooden post in the middle of the training area for fighters to practice against. The city known as Carnuntum was important for trade and military purposes because of its geographical position linking central and northern Europe to the Asian boundaries of the empire. And it's also where Marcus Aurelius, who we all know, lived for three years during the Marcomannic Wars in the late 2nd century AD, writing part of his famous works. But you also mentioned Silchester. Yes, Silchester, another fascinating discovery. It seems that Silchester is Britain's first pre-Roman planned town. So, okay, I'm going to get into trouble for saying this, but I thought Romans planned towns and brought civilization to the British. So did I, Diana, but the site near Reading, underneath the Roman town of Silchester, or Caliva Atrobatum, shows clear evidence of a town grid system and access to luxury imports like wine and olive oil. Professor Mike Fulford from the University of Reading indicates that this urbanised living and planned town would not have been so different to the later 1st century AD Roman town that precedes it. And he's also suggested that the Iron Age chieftain of the Catavalloni, a chap we know as Caraticus, may have used the town as his stronghold, as suggested by the strong concentration of coinage found in the area by his mint. So this really is remarkable find that challenges a great deal of our preconceptions about the Iron Age in Britain. But Diana, there's more. More? Oh yes, an Iron Age road. So it's a pre-Roman road. Yes, yes. An Iron Age road was uncovered in East Anglia. Due to its location through wetland areas, the find is thought to have been built as a crossing or route across the river Waveney by the Iceni. Ah, the Iceni. That's Boudicca's tribe, isn't it? Yes, that's right. Queen of the Iceni. However, she was around during the time of the initial Roman occupation and famous for her destructive rampage in 60 AD, whereas the dendrochronology of the wooden stakes found on this route, uh, tree ring dating, as other people call it, places the track to 75 BC, which is much earlier. So you said track just now, but you started off talking about a road. Well, it is a trackway, a structure built from stakes, which are posted into the wetland, up to the river, to form a wooden track structure. However, the track, sometimes known as a causeway, runs 500 metres up to the river at an impressive four metres wide. Four metres wide, Diana. 
Ooh, that's pretty wide. Exactly. So an Iron Age roadway through the lands of the Iceni. So are there any more Romanish surprises you're going to present us with, Tom? No, I'm afraid that's it, Dinah. Just a pre-Roman road and a pre-Roman town and a school for gladiators. <laughs> Thanks, Tom. Also this month, we couldn't get away without mentioning Sediba. You may remember that we reported on the discovery of a new species of hominin in April last year called Australopithecus sediba. Well, Professor Lee Berger from the University of the Witzvortesrand in Johannesburg, South Africa, and the international team of scientists involved in the analysis of the 1.9 million-year-old fossils came back with some interesting results this month. I seem to remember that it was actually Professor Berger's nine-year-old son, Matthew, who made the initial discovery when he was out walking. Yeah, that's right. Matthew Berger alerted his paleoanthropologist father soon after he stumbled across the find at Malapa, and that's the famous cradle of humankind World Heritage Site northwest of Johannesburg. And the block contained a fossilised hominin clavicle, which is a collarbone, a mandible, which is the jawbone, and a canine tooth. That's amazing. So what have they found that's new? Well, it seems that key anatomical features like the brain, the hands and feet and the pelvis all suggest that they could be directly related to us, Homo sapiens. OK, I'm, I'm pretty sure that Homo erectus, which evolved around 1.8 million years ago and died out approximately 70,000 years ago, is a likely ancestor of our own species. And doubtless Homo erectus had its origins in even earlier hominins like Homo habilis. So where does Australopithecus sediba fit into the story? Well, the sediba individuals were found in sediments that were dated to between 1.977 and 1.98 million years ago, which makes it old enough to be an ancestor of Homo erectus. Also, high-resolution X-ray scans of the brain case show that the shape of the brain, although much smaller than modern humans, is remarkably similar to our own, especially at the front. Wow. <laughs> so they've been able to narrow the date down to a 3,000-year time window. That's, that's really impressive. But what else makes this species more human-like? Well, the pelvis is also very modern-looking. It's short and broad, which, according to the team, dispels the theory that the development of human pelvis ran in tandem with an increase in brain volume and bigger heads. So what they're hypothesising is that these pelvis changes were actually more to do with walking upright. Um, also, the right hand of the female individual is really well preserved and the fingers are much shorter in relation to the thumb compared to other australopithecines, which suggests it had enough dexterity to make tools, but it was still powerful enough to grasp branches. So it probably did still spend some time in the trees. Well, it sounds to me like it had a mix of archaic and modern anatomical features. Exactly. And as Professor Chris Stringer from the Natural History Museum in London says, there were likely several species of Australopithecine coexisting and developing more and more human-like features as time went on, which eventually led to the arrival of our own genus, Homo. It will be interesting to see if they find any more individuals with this interesting mix of anatomical features. Exciting stuff indeed. And I understand there's been another discovery that sheds more light on the development of early stone tool technology. Yeah, moving north from South Africa to a site near Lake Turkana in northwest Kenya, archaeologists have discovered a number of large teardrop-shaped hand axes that date to about 1.76 million years ago. Teardrop-shaped hand axes. Now, I might be wrong, but that would be the distinctive Acheulean technology, right? Good knowledge, Tom. 
But I thought we knew a fair bit about Acheulean technology. What's so special about these finds? Well, these tools were discovered in mudstone sediments that have been dated to 1.76 million years ago, which is 350,000 years older than all previous Acheulean finds so far. Now, project leader Dr Christopher Lepra from Rutgers University in the United States believes that that places these finds closer to the arrival of Homo erectus. So once Homo erectus evolved, they basically went about inventing this new stone technology. Yeah, it would seem so. Archaeologists have tended to think that there was a borrowing period from the earlier Homo habilis, possibly the originators of the earlier Alduin technology. But that doesn't seem to be the case. What is puzzling, however, is that this distinctive Acheulean technology doesn't make it out of Africa for hundreds of thousands of years. That's strange. We know that Homo erectus was a great coloniser, they essentially spread throughout Africa and across Asia. So why didn't they take these new and sophisticated tools with them? Yeah, it's a bit surprising to think that Homo erectus didn't use this technology when they initially dispersed out of Africa. As Liverpool University's John Gowlett says, Acheulean hand axes were an all-purpose tool that could be used for butchery and woodworking. Very, very versatile. So a bit like a Stone Age Swiss army knife. Yeah, I think Aaron Ralston probably would have liked one. But uh, Rhonda Quinn from Rutgers University suggests that the hominins who actually dispersed out of Africa may not have been Acheulean users, i.e. they could have been a different culture or even a different species. Interesting. So many gaps in the early human record. And there's another one that needs filling. Thanks, Diana. You're listening to Naked Archaeology from The Naked Scientists, and you can find more episodes like this at thenakedscientist.com forward slash archaeology or on iTunes. Next up, how to examine plants. This month, Duncan spoke to Evie Margaritas to find out just what it is that archaeologists get out of long-gone vegetables and how they do it. Well, to begin with, as archaeobotanists, we deal with plant remains that we find at the excavations. Some archaeobotanists, like myself, we do seeds, nuts, fruits, that kind of of stuff. Well, others uh, identify wood or charcoal that we find at the excavations. Others do phytoliths, which is a relatively new development in the field. And to give you an idea what phytolith studies are, when plants die, their silica components are preserved in the soil. So there, they leave their signature, okay? And you can identify them under the microscope and see which plants they belong to. Now, we're in the lab, and we've got a table laid out here with all these wonderful samples. So talk us through how you go about analysing these samples. What, what are you looking at when you put some of these samples under the microscope? Well, as you can see yourself, this sample consists of black, small things. Some of them are charcoal, okay? And some of them are plant remains that I identify, so seeds and stuff and other plant components like chaff or that one that you can see here, you see, it's big enough. It's part of a complete grape that we found. All of them, as you see, are are charred. And in Greece, the plant remains are mainly preserved by charring. In other parts of the world, though, that my colleagues are more lucky, like in Egypt, you have desiccated material, or in Germany, you have waterlogged material. In Greece and other areas of the Mediterranean, okay, you have this bias that in order for the plant remains to be preserved, you need some kind of fire source. Or even in hearths, you have cooking accidents, so seeds that they were used for cooking, they get burned. 
So what's it like working with this kind of material in the field? How do you identify, separate, sort seeds and plant remains when you're on excavations? Seeds are not like pottery or bones that all you look at them and say, ah, great, let's pick them up. I always say that imagine the seeds having a small flag saying, rescue me. Otherwise, this information, this very, very important part of material culture is going to be lost. So I I think that it's, it's very, very important to do work in the field. We cannot identify many seeds during the excavation in the sense that if you have olive stones or almond cells or like big seeds or you have concentrations of seeds, yes, a trained eye could identify that. But if you don't do flotation, and by flotation I mean the procedure that separates soil from the organic remains, okay, then you're not going to find them at all. So we need to care about the seeds, and uh, people do these days. So how does, it's sort of a broad question now, how does, how does the study of archaeobotanical remains help us understand more about past environments? Well, archaeobotanical material can tell us what kind of plants were surrounding the sites, how these plants and trees were managed, what were their uses, to see if the climate was colder or not, how people were clearing the vegetation to create fields, or even to reconstruct human landscapes. We can do that with the plant remains. I'll give you an example. We were excavating very large farmhouses. We were very lucky because the storage area was burned down. So in the very large pithy, the, the storage vessels, we have found accumulation of hundreds of grape pips. So suddenly the estate wasn't producing, well, wheat, barley, legumes, blah, blah, blah. It was producing wine. And immediately you can imagine hectares of vines, okay, surrounding the estate in order to produce the wine that we thought that the pithy held in great quantities. So with the plant remains, we could visualize the human landscape of the 3rd century BC in Macedonia. So that's quite amazing, I think. Now, you mentioned the importance of archaeobotany in the study of past diets, um, early forms of agriculture, the spread of the Neolithic Revolution. So what other questions are you asking of this data? Well, one of the great success of archaeobotany has been unraveling the early history of farming. If we think that the development of agriculture is a critical, if not the most critical, turning point in the development of human society. So it has been demonstrated by archaeobotanists that the wild ancestors of crop plants such as wheat, barley, lentils, chickpeas, grew only in the Near East. And that was an indication that they must have been taken into domestication in this region. It is also possible to see the spread of agriculture in other regions, and well, Europe. And as for the diets, the composition of the archaeobotanical samples that look very unfriendly and black under the microscope can reveal if barley or wheat were eaten, if legumes were also part of the everyday staple foods, or they were making the, why they were making the choices that, that they did. When they started to produce alcohol from fermentation of fruits, or beer from the fermentation of, of barley, or wine, which we still like. <laughs> <laughs>
Now, you're the Leventis postdoctoral research fellow here at the British School at Athens, and I know you've got some very, very exciting projects running here in Athens, around Greece, and around the Aegean. So can you tell us a little bit of background to some of the exciting work you're doing now? So just to give you an example of one of the sites that I have been looking at, the early Bronze Age site of the Skaio, at the island of, of the Cycladic island of Keros, where olive and vine remains have been found, suggesting a very intensive management of the trees, which indicates a serious interaction of the farmers with the plants. This suggests by the early Bronze Age, this development was already happening and did not occur later, as other people believe. The publication of the site of the Scalio, for which Professor Renfrew and Dr. Michael Boyd are working very hard for the volume to appear next year from the McDonald Institute monographs at Cambridge, Another study that we are doing for this project with Dr. Mip Bauer and Professor Marty Jones at Cambridge again, we're trying to do DNA analysis from both modern and ancient olive populations to actually try to elucidate the biogeography of the olive tree. Well, an article for the public, or the olive in Crete in particular, is going to appear in the next issue of the current world archaeology. Evie Margaritas from the British School at Athens, where she's a Leventis Fellow and archaeobotanist. Thanks, Diana. Let's now travel to the warm embrace of southern Spain and the Alhambra for some Spanish backyard archaeology. We're in Granada in Andalusia in the south part of Spain, a place famous for its tapas and for its flamenco. I am stood in the Alcazaba, the military quarter of the Alhambra, which is a World Heritage Site visited by hundreds of thousands of people each year. And the Alhambra comes from the Arabic Al-Hamra, meaning the red one, and it is just one giant red hill in the middle of the landscape. And on top of this hill is a complex of monuments, palaces and various other architectural features. Well, I'm now stood on the Torre de Vela, which is the watchtower in the Alcazaba, and this is the military quarter of the Alhambra. And uh, there's been fortifications here since the 9th century, and where we're stood now, on top of the watchtower, is where the flags were raised in 1492 during the reconquest of this Moorish region, taken over once more by the Catholic forces. And it's all red, and down below us we can see the various remains of the barracks and the military buildings and there's lots of high-rise walls and all of it's red, everything's red. High-rising towers, ramparts and we are right beside the Palacio Nazares which is where the emirs and sultans and the rulers of the region held court and resided. However, the first palace on site was built by Samuel Najid much earlier on in the 11th century and now the palace complex that's visible today is mostly a product of the 13th and 14th centuries by the Nasrid family. And the Nasrid palaces are really what make this site world famous. And it was during this Islamic era 
that the Nazrid family ruled, starting off with Muhammad ibn Yusuf ibn Nazir, followed by the famous Muhammad V, who developed a lot of the palaces and made them so lavish and rich as can be seen today. I'm looking forward to going inside and discovering how rich and lavish all this decorative architecture really is. Incredible. The antechamber and the first forecourt, the Mexua and the Patio del Cuarto Dorado, are just magnificent. I can't even describe how beautiful they are. There's glazed tiling and stucco covered all around on the walls, which is this very fine, detailed plasterwork which goes around the upper parts of the walls, which is typical Islamic art and decoration. And looking carefully into it, you can see these delicate inscriptions which apparently I've been told are Arabic and the inscriptions read Walla Galiba Illa Allah and there is no conqueror but God being the literal translation making this place extremely important. And now I believe we're following into one of the most popular areas of the palace known to many. This is our Spanish guide who is about to say something to us. Y ahora entramos al patio de los leones. Now going to the courtyard of the lions. Another absolute bewildering sight. Twelve marble lions all arranged in a circle. And it's actually when you inspect the lions more closely that you can appreciate the very fine detail that's gone into these marble carvings. And the marble has been carefully selected by the sculptors to emphasise all the features of each individual lion. So the lines within the marble, the veins, so to speak, accentuate the curves of the lion, the legs, the back and the haunches so it really they are really stunning to look at and I, the only reason we can appreciate them now is to the great effort that's gone into the restoration of these lions uh, deposits have been removed parts have been replaced previous restorations have been identified all the lions have carefully been treated to try and restore them best to their original appearance and it is just stunning and they've gone as far as using laser stuff so it is really is impressive what they have done and it is these these lions that captivate so many and it is unclear about the meaning or the islamic parallels to these sculptures in this Muslim palace but it has been pointed out that there are parallels that have been highlighted in the old Hebrew Bible uh, to the Temple of Solomon and I'll just read out four lines from a Hispano-Hebrew poet Ibn Gabirol and it, the first four lines are there is a pond like the Sea of Solomon it doesn't rest over bulls but over lions arranged in circles they seem to roar to their prey water flows from their mouth without end and this is exactly it this water supposed to be flowing out these lines and i suppose the reason i'm in this poetic mood is listening to the audio guide to discover that a famous american author from the early 19th century by the name of washington irving actually stayed at the palace living here in granada enjoying the palace writing about it writing about spanish history and writing some wonderful literature which I've been listening to and it's just wonderful. 
Tom Birch there in Andalusia's Alhambra. And that's it for Naked Archaeology this month. If you want to get in touch about anything, then you can email us. The address is archaeology, and you can spell that in the American way, if you wish, at thenakedscientist.com. A big thanks to all our interviewees and our researchers and co-presenters this month. That's Duncan Howitt Marshall and Tom Birch. Laying the artefacts there. Naked Archaeology. Thank you.